0: Welcome to Our Tribe, the podcast that sits down with Jewish professionals and entrepreneurs to hear their stories, share their advice, and bear their Jewish souls. Now here's your host, Rabbi Tuvia Kopstein. Welcome back to Our Tribe, the podcast. This is Tuvia Kopstein. And in this episode, we have the rare privilege of meeting Dr. Nurit Sirkis-Bank. Dr. Bank is an accomplished professor of visual art. She's a museum curator in museums all throughout Israel and all throughout the world. She is an expert on Jewish art. She smashes boundaries. She smashes expectations. And this interview is simply smashing. Enjoy Our Tribe, the podcast. Welcome back to Our Tribe, the podcast. And we are very pleased to welcome to the episode, Dr. Nurit Bank. Dr. Bank, how are you? Uh,
1: It is such a privilege to be here. Thank you so much. I'm so excited.
0: Okay, we're very excited too. Now, Dr. Bank, as I understand, you are uh, an art curator and you are an art professor. And uh, just tell us about your role, please, in in the world of art.
1: So, what I can say as an introduction is art is my life. I love art. And the main art I love is the art of the creator of the universe i see in every flower and every tree and every stone and every human being a work of art an eternal work of art of the creator um professionally i'm doing many many different things in the field of art of israel i teach in the Btzalel art academy in the there is actually a, a special part of the academy that is for ultra-religious women and I teach there the yearly course of uh, Jewish history. Not just Jewish, but all the art history. And I love to call it the history of Jew- of human creation. It's um, a one-year basic course in the academy. I curate many, many exhibitions all over Israel. And I'm specifically interested in art that is inspired by Jewish sources, by Jewish ideas. So at the moment, I just returned now from hanging an exhibition in the city of Beit Shemesh, Israel, in a place called Start, the Visual Center for Art. And uh, I'm hanging now an exhibition that we have worked on for a whole year on the topic of the present moment. Um, At the same time, I'm doing now a new project in a home for highly disabled people, both physical and mental disabilities, and uh, we are working now together on an exhibition called Circles of Togetherness. It's very, very moving for me to work on it. I have hung recently an exhibition in the city of El Ad with a group of artists uh, with We called it insights in Hebrew, tovanot, and um, like different communities, different places all over the country. At the same time, I also work with artists on advancing their creative ideas and thoughts and and, uh, trying to build my dream, which is to create a center for Jewish arts, both visual arts and stage arts. Uh, a place that I would love to call inspire or inspiration. Uh, In Hebrew, it's called Hashra'ah, and Hebrew, the amazing language, in the same word Hashra'ah in Hebrew means both the inspiration of an artist, and it also means the way that the divine dwells upon the Jewish nation. So it's like the artist coming from his own world up above, and the dwelling of the inspiration from above and where they connect. It's that spark of beauty and art.
0: Wow, amazing. So the first question I have for you is, what makes Jewish art? How do you define Jewish art?
1: That's a fantastic question, which many researchers and historians actually struggled with. So let's start with what is not Jewish art. Jewish art is not specifically made by Jewish people, because it could be that people that aren't Jewish are interested in Jewish topics, and they create what we can call Jewish art. And it could be that Jewish people create art that is not necessarily Jewish, that it could be any kind of um, international art or art that speaks about uh, their personal feelings, and it could be actually very anti-Jewish in some cases. Um, art is also, Jewish art is not specifically, as I would say, about Jewish topics. Many people think that Jewish art has to include the, the Kotel, the Western Wall, or Jewish holy places, or Jewish portraits of rabbis or important people. So I feel that it's not necessary. So from this, I get to what I do think that is Jewish art, um, I call Jewish art an art that is has the spark and inspiration of the world of content that engulfs Judaism. So it could be art that deals with questions about Jewish identity. It could be art that deals with Jewish lifestyles or Jewish family. It could be art that Is interested in the Jewish history in all its different uh, facets. It could be art that doesn't even look Jewish, but is asking a question that comes from a Jewish source. Um, And I can give an example of uh, many, many art exhibitions that I've been involved with. For example, one of them that I called in Hebrew "Bein Kodesh Lechol" between um um maybe help me translate it kodesh holy, would be holy
0: and mundane
1: and the mundane yeah. Yeah. so i invited different artists to create works of art with this question between the holy and the mundane because judaism is not just about holiness it takes the mundane and it actually elevates it into a holy realm. Because in Judaism, actually, every simple action, starting from the basic needs of breathing, eating, having a Jewish family, all of these simple, simple actions can become holy actions when we put inside them the Jewish spark and the Jewish intention. And uh, actually, this exhibition of Between the Holiness and the Mundane we tried to grasp, is there something that is absolutely only, only holy and disconnected to the regular everyday life? Or is there anything in the everyday life that we could say that it has no sparks of holiness? And actually, every artist asked and answered this question from different angles. And it was really, really very, very fascinating.
0: Wow. And they, when they say they asked an answer, that means that you, by looking at the art, you can see that they asked and answered, or is it there some kind of quotation for, or testimonial from the artist or that accompanies their their work?
1: Thank you. Beautiful question. I actually love to have a testimonial, like a little kind of quote from the artist. Uh, sometimes artists choose to quote Jewish sources, like a midrash or something from the Zohar or from the Torah, and other artists love to put it in their own words. Other artists. They say, you know, I have nothing to say. You as a curator put your interpretation there. So when I see an exhibition and the different works of art are hung there all over the gallery, I see a discussion between the artists in the techniques that they chose to use in the visual objects or aspects that they chose to present in their art and um, the materials they chose to use and all these things are having a discussion. Hmm. So wow. Maybe again, we'll give an example. Um, in that exhibition between the holy and the mundane, I took the image of the challah, which is the special bread, the special braided bread that Jewish people have on the Sabbath night. And actually throughout the whole Shabbat, Shabbat um, in their meals. So, um one artist, actually, um, a very interesting contemporary artist called Mota Brin, what he did is that he makes challah for his family. And he noticed that on the baking paper, there is kind of a print of the challah as it goes into the oven and out. So most people see this print, but don't regard it as a work of art. But he, as an artist and a contemporary artist, he actually started a whole new way of looking at very simple things like baking paper and elevating them into a artwork, which is made. It's a ready-made work of art. And then he started playing with it. In the beginning, it was just simple chalas as they leave their print on the paper. And slowly, slowly he started positioning the halas in a certain way and opening the braidings in certain ways. So (laughs) it actually looks like a dance. Like when he puts the two halas one next to each other and he opens the braidings of them, it looks like two people dancing. Now another artist (laughs) took this idea of the baking paper, which she actually didn't know that this contemporary artist does it. I actually presented it to her. What she does is that she takes those baking papers she cuts them to pieces and then she sews them with her sewing machine or hand sews them and makes amazing things from these hala baking papers like um, she made kind of curtains that move in the wind and um she just uh, asks this question of does the thing has to stay as it was created initially or can it go through changes? And the last work that I want to mention here is I invited to this same exhibition a young woman artist-photographer that took pictures of chalas at the time of Sreifat chametz That there are times in the year, like the 24 hours before Pesach, that Jewish people take out all the leavened bread from their homes um, either just crumbs of bread or sometimes a whole beautiful braided loaf of homemade challah. And they actually put it out to be burnt before Pesach because it is actually forbidden to be in the Jewish home for those seven days of Pesach. So when I actually put these works together, the challah as this representative of the holy moment of the Shabbat coming in, I'm remembering now, I also invited another artist that took, he called it a portrait of a challah, he's an amazing photographer, and he just made a photograph of the challah as the most beautiful object, art object, like we would do a still life, or a bowl of fruit, so he took the challah as his topic, with beautiful lighting on it, that presented glory and beauty, and these works made out of the challah paper, and it was actually conflicting with that work showing the bread being thrown away and being ready to be burnt. So all these works of art, if you can understand what I'm saying about discussion, they discuss the different aspects of the holiness and the mundaneness of bread as something so basic and something so holy at the same time.
0: Wow, very fascinating. Okay, so my next question is, Um, I want to ask, I know that there's a very interesting backstory that you have about how you came into the, the world of, of teaching art and curating art. Uh, uh, Can you give us a little insight into, into how, I know it it would be a long story that's way, way too long to tell on a short podcast, but, but uh, somehow the brief, the brief version of, of how you came to this.
1: It's my pleasure to share this story. I want to introduce first to say that I see in my 31 years that I chose to be an observant Jew, that actually that the endless, infinite wisdom of the world of Hashem, of the creator actually meets every person where they are, where they are present so, for example, my husband is a medical doctor. He's a dentist and he has many friends that are medical doctors. And when we sit around our Shabbat table, we hear these amazing stories that a doctor was in the middle of a surgery and he was a Jew, but a completely secular Jew. And as he was in the surgery, he was ignited and inspired to understand that there must be one creator of all these different human beings because their organs are so perfectly intact and so perfectly harmonized and they're the same in all the different human beings or another friend of mine was a musician and she told me she was in the middle of a concert in norwegia in uh, it was just the sun was setting on the friday afternoon and as she was playing the piano she realized wow the sun is setting it means it's shabbat and she asked herself is she actually allowed as a jewish person to play music on a piano on shabbat And that question that she got as she was doing the things she loved most, sitting in a concert in front of the audience, she was inspired to check her Jewish roots. So the same with me. As I began to say that art is my life and is my essence, as I was searching for the topic for my PhD after I... Um, completed my BA studies in art history and philosophy and my MA studies that I researched the interrelationship between art and photography I was searching for the big topic for my PhD that in Israel is usually seven years after you start it um so after you start I, after, the
0: doctorate program you're,
1: exactly you're so in the, you're to, in
0: that okay got it <laughs> at
1: least 14 years Israel to do a PhD in um, the humanities. Uh So actually, I was searching for my topic and I wanted to find that truly inspiring artist that doesn't copy from other people, that is always innovative, that is fascinating, that his ideas are so deep and rooted, and that he can bring people so to be so inspired and so like elevated through his work of art. And I actually went to Europe to search for this artist. I wanted a living artist. And I went from place to place. I started my tour in Germany. I went to museums and private uh, collections and galleries. And I was searching and searching it. I couldn't find him there. And I went on to Paris to France, And I was searching in all the galleries and all the museums and all the collections and all the people that know other artists and I just couldn't find him and then eventually I got to London, the year was 1991 that's 31 years ago, and uh, I want to mention that I was a completely secular Israeli that had uh, no idea in anything Jewish. And there was one exhibition at the time in London that was um, called the Jewish experience in the 20th century. It was presented in the Barbican center of arts and it was created, curated by Avraham Kampf. And incidentally, years later I bumped into the curator and I said to him, your exhibition changed my life. And he actually said, Hmm, he didn't ask me how, (laughs) He didn't have the time to hear, but I can make it short that I really didn't want to go into that exhibition. It didn't sound interesting to me. I was more interested in international art. I loved abstract art, conceptual art. I didn't think that a Jewish art exhibition that was historical could be of any interest to me. But as it happened, I'm a very kind of um, professional perfectionist academic, and uh, I had this list of all the exhibitions in London, and I just had to V them, you know, to say, okay, I went to this, to this, to this. Yeah, and at that day, um, this was the only exhibition that I haven't gone to yet. And that morning, I asked myself, uh, you know, I said, let's go to the exhibition, and I found inside myself a little bit of resistance and I didn't want to go. And I tried to search within myself, what is my resistance? Why don't I want to go there? And every every um, kind of thing that I said to myself as the reason of why I don't want to go, I found another reason why I actually should go. And uh, as I say it, this exhibition really, really changed my life. Because it put me face-to-face in front of my Jewish identity that I really put in a very back, back burner. It wasn't anything that was in the front of my consciousness at the time. I didn't feel specifically connected to my Jewish roots because I was, I grew up in, my father was in the foreign affairs of the state of Israel. And by the age of six, we were already all over planet earth, including Iran in the 1970s, that they were the best friend of Israel at the time. Of course, uh, Europe, America, uh, South Africa, Australia, all over the world. And um, I really didn't think that Jewish, Jewish content was something that would be relevant for me. But what happened there in short was that for many, many years, I had this question that I would wake up in the morning with, and I would go to sleep with. And this question was, who am I? Who am I beyond my physical existence, beyond my family connections, beyond what I do, beyond my studies, beyond my relationships? Who am I really essentially within? Who is the true me? And, This question actually got answered there in the museum, in front of a work of art. And that was the beginning of my journey to Judaism.
0: How did it answer the question?
1: Well, okay. So the first pictures of that exhibition were very painful historically. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Kishinev pogroms, um, the ghetto and fire, um the expulsion really really very difficult emotional pictures for me now for me as a person that art is my life I don't see a work of art just as a little bit of paint on a canvas or as a visual representation of something when I see a work of art I actually delve into it I dive into it I feel it I can smell the smells I hear the sounds I see the sights my whole body is alive with that art. I feel it in my cells. So the first works of art in that exhibition were so painful for me that I couldn't even stand in front of them. I just felt so shocked and so devastated, like uh, pounding on my heart. I felt the, the weight of Jewish history on my light shoulders, mm-hmm. and I just couldn't stand it. I almost wanted to run away from that exhibition. And as I was running out through the exit, because it was called the Jewish experience in the 20th century, the works of art became more and more abstract and works of art that I felt more and more comfortable standing next to them and not having to run away. So I reached this work of art that was just a little bit of blue and white with a few Jewish Hebrew letters floating there in the air. And as I was standing there getting a breath of air after the trauma I went through from the first works that were exhibited, somebody walked behind my back and continued walking on. And until today, I don't know if that somebody was male or female, Jewish, not Jewish, young or old. I have no idea. I was looking at the work of art, but I just sensed that somebody is walking and continuing to walk. And that person triggered within me a question. And the question was, why am I still standing here in front of this work of art? And that person is walking away. And the answer that came within me was not actually that technical answer that because I'm at the moment standing here and nobody else can stand here at the same time, but it was more internal. And I actually... Ask myself, is that person that just walked away, does he realize that these little shapes on that painting are actually Hebrew letters? Or maybe he just thinks it's stripes and, and marks. And then that brought me to think that I not only um, think in Hebrew, even though I speak in English, but actually I realized that my essence is this thread of thought in Hebrew that I can remember from way back when I was a tiny little child all over the world, going from place to place with my parents, and until this present moment when I'm standing now here in front of the work of art. And I felt so deeply that my essence is my thread of thought in Hebrew. Mm -hmm. Even though, Mm I speak a little bit of English, I understand all kinds of different languages and speak a little bit of them but really me is my chain of thought in hebrew and at that moment that i thought it you know i said to myself i have to find what are the borders if i grasp something that is me where do i start and where do i end and my question was do i start at the soles of my feet do i end at the top of my head and my answer was no that i burst external I, I I actually trans trans what something out my, yeah outside of my body you know it's mm-hmm. not I'm not confined into this physical form and then I asked myself until where do I get you know do I get to the ceiling I break the ceiling I break the boundaries of planet earth to atmosphere and the outer space and I'm just saying to myself wow 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 the thread of thought has no boundaries and then it came to my mind the word in Hebrew "ein Sof, which means infinity, and it is actually one of the names of the Creator of the universe. And at that moment of thought, it ignited a spark in me that I realized that this entire universe was created through the ten utterances of Hashem in Hebrew: "Va'yomer Elokim Yehi Or."
0: You knew that you knew this. You knew this at the time, even though you then, grew up secular.
1: I knew that, I knew that, I knew. And Hashem said, let there be light. I knew that in the same language. And I realized he didn't say in English, let there be light or in Arabic, it al-nur, or in French or in German or in Korean or Japanese. He said it in this holy language that is instilled inside not only my brain, but my entire existence. And at that moment, I realized that the deepest part in me, the who I am, is connected to the entire force that created the universe. And that was such a life-changing insight and realization that I can say that for so many years, I felt as, as if I was a little thread in the world that I am alone. But at that moment that I realized that the creator created the world in the same language that I think within, endless, endless connections came out of me to the entire universe. And the universe is connected to me in every way. And uh, my first question was, what is my obligation? Once now I realize that I'm connected to the creator of the universe, How does it influence my way of life? And it was clear to me that it had to change. It was clear to me that my life is not in sync with what the creator would want for me. And I knew I had to find that answer to that question. What is my purpose in the world? And how should I live my life in the way that the creator would want me to live?
0: Okay, so where did you go? Where did you go from there? How did you get started to answer that question?
1: Yeah, so first of all, I can say that I was so shaken by this experience in the museum. And when I stepped out of the Barbican Center into the streets of London, the whole world looked different to me. I looked at the trees and we usually see a tree as an object, as something stable. But somehow at that amazing moment, the tree looked like a National Geographic, you know, time-lapse film that I could see the, the roots going in and the 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 branches going up in the air. And I looked at people and I could see them being created. I could see that they're in a moment that is part of an endless sequence that I'm just meeting this one second, but this old, old man was young, once a young child, and this young child that I'm seeing now on the street is going to be an old, old man. It was just like this amazing experience. Like the whole world looked as a work of art. And I realized that the creator is that artist that I was searching for, that this is our world is actually an everlasting piece of art that is being renewed at every split second. It was so powerful, that moment. It wasn't something intellectual that I learned from a book or somebody told me. It was an insight to that burst from within, realizing that this world is an entire work of art that I am part of. So from there, the museum, I went to my hotel room. I picked up the phone to El Al. I asked when is the next flight to Israel? And they said, tomorrow morning, nine o'clock. I said, put me on that plane and I went to window seats because I love seeing the clouds. It just gives me such a a joy i call myself i am the child uh, running in the fields of clouds of my childhood this is my memory childhood memories being in those airplanes and looking at the clouds from above when you see the sun shining on top of them with their various colors and i just came to israel and i was in a different kind of a mindset i was very open to judaism but i really didn't know what am i supposed to do I didn't know Jewish organizations or Kirov programs. I didn't even know the word Kirov. I didn't even know that there was anybody else in that kind of consciousness as I was. I thought that it was just me and Hashem, you know? I felt that I was, I was so excited that I, I discovered this master artist, which is the creator.
0: For those who don't and know, uh, K- wait, for sorry, one minute. For those who don't know, Mrs. Uh, Dr. Bank is referring to outreach, Jewish outreach programs, Kiruv. Okay, go ahead. People, uh, some of our listeners might not know the terms that you're using. So, Okay, go ahead, please. <laughs> Thank
1: you. So, well, I get, got back to the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and I was very, very open to new ideas, to, to learn Jewish sources and Jewish ideas. And the way Hashem brought it to me was through professors, through PhD students, through uh, people that were doing the same things that I was doing, but were a little bit more knowledgeable about Jewish topics and Jewish sources. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just like so interesting how I didn't go to any specific program, but the universe or Hashem, however you would like to call it, just got me to meet the right people in the right time. So I met one person that um, didn't look at all observant or religious in any any way, but we were discussing um, how to get in a higher kind of um,
0: consciousness.
1: Consciousness. That's exactly the word. How to get to higher consciousness. In Hebrew, we call it "todaa." Okay. And it's amazing that in Hebrew, the word for thankfulness is "toda. And consciousness is Toda, ah, it's so similar to one another. So this person that didn't look at all religious, he recommended to me to do a Jewish practice that is called netilat yadayim, washing the hands in a special vessel. And I was so distanted from that, that I didn't even know that what he is saying to me is in Hebrew. I asked him, are you speaking Hebrew? Is this word nitilati daim in Hebrew? Or is it Japanese or Indian? Or I I never knew that word. And he said to me, you know what? I'll I'll buy you this object tomorrow and I'll show you how to use it. And he buys me this little kind of plastic round container with two handles. And he puts it on the table. And I said, Oh, this looks so unusual. It looks like a museum object. It looks actually. <laughs> like a little primitive thing maybe people that don't have running water in their homes maybe they they collect water from a water source like from a river or from a well with this thing I never saw it before so he said to me no 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 it's uh it's used every day in Jewish homes and I said wow how is it used so he said well first of all you fill it with water and the specific amount of water is very, very important. It can't be smaller, and it can't be much bigger. It has to be exactly this size, because the size has a meaning, and it's round, because the water always moves inside this round thing, and you're supposed to take it next to your bed, wherever you sleep, in a bowl, and you're supposed to fill it with water and cover over it all night, so the water doesn't get contaminated with all kinds of forces during the night wow it sounded to me like so uh interesting and <sighs> intriguing and then he said well in the morning when you wake up you pick it up with your right hand and you give it to your left hand and then the left hand pours over the right and the right the left and so three times and I said oh no it sounds like a little bit too creepy and too you know I, I don't know if I can connect to it so he said to me you know what just try it You do it in your own room. Nobody has to see. You're not obligated. You don't have to take it for the rest of your life. Just try it once. So I did. And I was a little bit cynical and a little bit skeptical. You know, I wasn't sure how it's going to be. And the next morning I did, as he told me, washing my hands. And it was a wow, wow. Like I was just saying, what's happening here? The whole world seemed to me like a different place my room, my window, the trees showing through the window. It was all different. I saw it in a completely different perspective. And when I spoke to him again, he said, yes, that actually Judaism talks about this idea of purity that is different to cleanliness. In our Western world, we usually talk about hygiene and being clean, but it's It's something completely different to purity, which is something that is spiritual. It has nothing to do with cleanliness. My hands are clean when I wake up in the morning, but when I wash them with this special vessel of water with a specific way that we do it, as it is written in the book of the Jewish law called the Shulchan Aruch, we have this law. This is the first thing, almost the first thing we do in the morning When I did it, I actually entered this realm called purity that I didn't know before. I was alive at that time, 27 years, and I never did this practice. And once I experienced the purity in my own life, it was just so overwhelming. It was so exciting. It was so, it was just like, wow, finding a new world. It was really, really life-changing. And I just want to add one sentence that I learned at that time as well. He taught me this uh, person that was sent to me by Hashem, as I say, by, he said to me, as you open your eyes in the morning, you have to say one sentence and you say, I thank you, um, the eternal king, for returning my soul inside me. And my belief is very big. That's a, a... Kind of a your
0: belief, no? I'm a right? No, your your belief or my belief.
1: It's What's very mean? interesting. <laughs> it's <really> interesting. <laughs> for I'm another time. Yeah. You, relationship, so right. <laughs> it was just like wow. It was a new morning beginner. I grew up in Los Angeles when in the 1970s. And in many many places, there was this beautiful little poster that said, "Today is the first day of the rest of your life." And it was kind of a sentence that I always lived with. But when I experienced this experience of that thank you, once I opened my eyes and that excitement of washing my hands and getting to a level called purity beyond cleanliness, it was the first day of the rest of my life. It was a wow. It was a life changer. It was something so small and so simple and so unexpected. I could never expect that. But once I did the mitzvah, I immediately felt this amazing, amazing feeling that I can't even express in words.
0: Okay, great. So now my next thank you for sharing that. That's amazing. Now my my question now is based on what you're saying, it was such an emotional and artistic um, you know, the the approach, the the what we would call perhaps a return to your Jewish roots was coming it was an artist return you're talking about tahari talking about purity and and feeling the the deep roots and the connection seeing the beauty of the creator but i know that that a lot of a lot of people come from a different approach maybe just because uh, for certainly because of who they are when they're 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 encountering uh judaism torah for the first time and they they are approaching from a more intellectual standpoint and i i just want to know i know that I can assume that growing up in the sixties and seventies, oh, you say, so he's 27 years old in 1991. Okay. The (laughs) eighties. So growing up at that time, I'm sure, I'm sure you're coming from, from a liberal ideology and, and now, and eventually you're, you're approaching your Judaism from an emotional standpoint, but how do you, how do you eventually make peace with the ideas that you came from, you know, the ideas that you grew up with in, in terms of how the, lib- the, the world, the modern world, the liberal world views everything. And then the emotional connection to God that you're experiencing. How does that translate in, 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 terms, in terms of what you are, I mean, in terms of what you know intellectually and what you're accustomed to intellectually?
1: So it's a brilliant question that you're asking. It is actually an amazing transformation. And it brings me back to the museum since I told the story so shortly. So I skipped a very, very important point there that I'm going to go back and that will answer your question. When I grew up in the United States and actually the Western world ideology, even here in Israel and the Hebrew University, It's all rooted on the Greek perception, the classical world, wherein the human being is in the center. And what us as human beings, what we can perceive, what we can understand, the way we think is the right way to act, this stands in the center of our culture. We can call the human um, Western culture humanism. Because the man is in the center. And I'll give you an example from art history. The Greek temple is actually exactly built for human dimensions. Because if it's it's a, a average height man standing in an average distance from the building, it's calculated so that his eyes can perceive the entire building from the bottom step until the, the top of the roof. The the whole building of the Greek uh, temple is built according to human perception so is also the Greek for example the tragedy satire and comedy they're built for human perception there is the how do you call it the unity of time and the unity of place and the unity of narrative these three unities and actually the entire modern world that is built on top of those classical ideas builds the entire world on our understanding, democracy as well, what people think is good for them, what people choose. uh, The entire liberal uh, point of view of life is every person is entitled to choose what they think is good for them. And actually on the gable of the Greek um, temple, there was one sentence that was written. And that sentence was know yourself, know who you are. And the idea of the Greeks is when you know who you are, and since the entire universe is built on human foundations, when you know yourself, you know the universe. When I was standing there in that museum, I came with that ideology. This is really who I am and where I stood. But at that split second that I understood that I am created to the ultra power of the creator of the universe a sentence came into my mind from an ancient, uh, maybe collective, uh, how do you call it, subconsciousness. And that sentence was, know in front of whom you are going to be judged, the king of kings, Hashem. And I'll say it in Hebrew. Da, lifnei mi ata omed baruch hu. Maybe you can translate it into English.
0: You already did. You said... Okay. You...
1: <laughs> Maybe there is a co- more correct way to say.
0: No, yeah, I think your, your translation was perfect.
1: At that split second, I actually understood that the entire world I grew up on put human beings as, let's call it the glass ceiling, that a person can get to where his thoughts can get. And he can do things as much as he can understand. And he can be who he thinks he should be. But once I broke that glass ceiling and I understood that there is an immense power that created the entire universe and I am created to this immense force and he is so much more intelligent than I am. That my brain and my understanding and my human limitations are so, so... Tiny and minute in comparison to the extremity of his largeness, that was the changing point. I understood that there are things that I will never understand. I understood that there is a higher intelligence than my own intelligence. And my peers and my my, my inspirational people that I thought were the top, I understood that there is something on top of them. And that was a very big changing point because at that moment I accepted that there is a root of life that is guided by the Torah, by our, by our, um, by the creator himself that gave the Torah on Mount Sinai. And there is halacha, which is the Jewish law according to which we must live in order to fulfill our full potential. And actually, one of the first questions I ever asked a rabbi when I met a rabbi just a few weeks later after that experience is I asked this rabbi in his sukkah, um, I asked him, is it true that actually there was a human being called Moses that actually went on top of? Uh Oh, he froze up. So one of the first questions I asked a rabbi that I actually met, I never met a rabbi. I never sat with a rabbi face to face. So another another person took me to visit his friends in a sukkah, and there was a really serious rabbi there. And I, I I said to him, I need to ask you a question. And he said, yes, you can ask. And I said, I want to know, is it real? Was there really a human being called Moses that really? Went on onto a real mountain called Mount Sinai. And on top of that mountain, did he really receive the word of God inside a real object called the Torah? Is it real? So he said to me, it is absolutely real. And he said, a person that does not believe that is not Jewish. And I was, you know, thinking with myself, well, do I believe it or don't I believe it? So I said, wait, I have a question. I said, if Moses was a real human being, and he really on that top of that mountain made a conscious meeting with the superpower that created the entire universe that we call infinity that we can't even grasp in our minds. It's it's not that old man with a white beard above the clouds as is painted in the Western art. We know in Judaism that we cannot think of God as a figure, as a form. It is something way, way, way beyond. So I said, could it be, how could it be that they could converse? How could they discuss? How could this limited human being have a discussion with the infinite? And actually, I was asking a question about myself, about myself standing there in the museum And at that moment, realizing that I as a human being am connected to the infinite. And he answered me in a very wise way, in a very Jewish way. You know that Jewish people, the way they answer a question is by asking another question. So since he knew that I'm a, I was a PhD candidate in the Israel, in the Hebrew university at that time, he said, I want to ask you a question. let let me ask you back a question. Can you imagine a three-year-old child? I said, sure. And can you imagine that his grandfather is a professor in the Hebrew University? I said, sure. Now he says, this professor, he's not just a regular professor. He's a professor of philosophy and psychology and neuroscience and all kinds of different areas, mathematics and whatever, okay? And he's a Nobel prize winner, Now, could the grandfather and the grandchild have a conversation? Can it be that the child will ask something and the grandfather will answer in a way that the grandchild will understand? And actually, then he went on to another conversation and I was left with that question and I understood it that second. Wow, the whole idea in... Um, Judaism called tzimtzum, meaning that contraction, that Hashem, the creator, is so big, so large that he can also have the ability to make himself so small to meet the understanding of that person that is in search of him. So that was a very, very crucial answer that I received from that rabbi that explained to me that whenever we think we are at the highest level, understanding the highest things, it's actually the, the minutest condensing that Hashem minutes Himself in a way that our limited brain can perceive. This infinite.
0: Wow. Okay, so are you saying that that understanding of, of mankind's smallness and, and Hashem's greatness was what facilitated your change as you went that you you had that initial understanding even at the first moment that you realized that you want to you want to know what it means you want to you want to explore who you are now and that the understanding that the man is so small and so limited really allowed you to to take to to change the way you you perceive the world that's correct
1: as a like a user, user's manual you know like mm-hmm. when we washing machine we have to you read the user's manual to know what b- buttons to press and how to make it work and the way I grew up you know there were no rules whatever you feel like whatever you think is okay you know everything is in our liberal point of view we can accept and we can um adapt to any kind of lifestyle and any kind of ideology or any kind of personal perception that we want to. And then I passed into understanding that there is the way we are supposed to live. And the more we live through this user's manual, the way we follow the rules, we actually not um, limit ourselves, but we expand on that place within us that can grow in an amazing amazing way and I can say in one little word that as long as it's intellectual we hear about it it stays as a theory but like I gave that example of washing the hands in the morning once one experiences it it's a completely different world and this is Judaism Judaism calls us to experience Jewish life to experience Shabbat to experience Jewish relationships to experience every kind of Jewish action, starting from art until the simplest actions of food and um, even breathing. You know, we could do everything in a Jewish way and it elevates our regular life into such amazing heights.
0: Hey, I wa- Thank you. Thank you for that. I wanted to ask now, there is a, a common accusation against a Torah way of life is that women are are oppressed and women are placed in the second you know second class citizens and you know when you live the life obviously you know you know it's not so but what would you say how do you understand the role of a Jewish woman and and and, and what would you say to people that will will say no, the women are subservient the women are you know looked down upon what what's your what's your message what's your take on that and 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 how do, and, and I'm sure to add to the question I'm sure you came from the perspective that I'm that I'm speaking about, and you have transformed it to a different perspective. And how did, how do you explain that to the world?
1: It's a brilliant question, and it's a very appropriate question. So, really, when I was growing up as a liberal, and I'm still a very liberal human being with it, it, the boundaries of Judaism. Uh, this was my thought. This is how I perceived the synagogue where there was a separation between men and women or different uh, mitzvahs like the tefillin and the tzitzit that only men do and women don't do. But as I went deeper and deeper into Judaism, I understood that there, it's actually a non-comparable way of life, that we should not look at it as... Uh, Uh, mitzvahs of male should be just like the mitzvahs of the female because male and female are so different essentially and this is the beauty of Judaism that is sensitive to these to these nuances that a man is actually obligated to pray in a community with another nine men to create the minion which is ten men together but a woman when she lights her Shabbat candles she is absolutely reaching the same spiritual height. And I will explain that 10 men together in Hebrew is called a community. And the Hebrew name is Eda. And Hashem dwells upon the community, the Eda. But when a woman stands alone in her home next to her Shabbat candles or while kneading her bread to make the challah for Shabbat or raising her children or doing every every everyday action, Hashem is with her. She doesn't need another nine women to connect to Hashem because she is made of a higher spiritual, let's call it um, essential material. And if we go to the creation we see that the creation went very similar to what the Big Bang theory is. It started from um, inanimate things like uh, water and earth, and then they were separated. And then we went into a higher level of vegetation that sprouted from the ground. And then we went to a higher level of living beings that were the, the tiniest ones, water creatures and air creatures that, Slowly, slowly became more and more developed until the pinnacle of the creation. The last, okay. So, so, as man is the pinnacle of creation that was created by the hands of the artist Hashem that took the earth that was mixed with water and with fire, and then Hashem put in the spirit, the soul. Then the creation of of the female was from the highest, highest material, because she was already created, not from the basic material of soil that man was created from, but she was created with already the soul inside of him. So the woman was the last, last, last creation that was created in the universe, and therefore, she is actually the crown of creation. And this is the explanation why women don't need some of the mitzvahs that men need that are called mitzvahs that are connected to time. She is beyond time. She is beyond um, the, the, the need to do rituals because she is internally connected to the creator by giving birth to the next generation. As Eve said, in the book of Genesis, I am part of the creation of God. I am taking part in it by bringing the next generation to the world. So as I continued my journey in Judaism, I found out that so many of the rules and the laws are very sensitive to w- women's role. And they, there is such an utter respect for a woman as a human being and as a different human being to males and as someone that has a different set of abilities and talents and the right perspective of allowing her to express herself in her most totality in the right way. And I'll give one example. My PhD dissertation was visual aspects of contemporary Hasidic weddings in Israel. Hmm. And things that I noticed from the beginning was the separation of space between men and women. They're two separate spaces. And uh, this made me think and rethink about our Western world and its standards. And I can say like this, when there is a space in which men and women are together, there is this constant consciousness of how do I look, how do I present myself to the other gender. There is a lot of self-consciousness. When the space is separated, when there is dancing that is separate from men only with their own energies, and there are separate dancing for women only with their energies, there is something that is so much more comfortable, something that is so much more natural, something that releases stress and makes the entire experience much more elevating much more spiritual much more true and much less a stage presentation than when it is in a different way Mm -hmm. so the Jewish woman is actually the powerhouse behind the Jewish community and the Jewish family the Jewish mother is is there, so responsible for giving the love and the direction and even the Torah to the children. The woman is there to build the relationship together with her husband in the home. The woman is there to move the Jewish community forward in so many different ways that are different to what the Western culture thinks, but give her so much space and so much expression and especially so much joy and fulfillment
0: thank you so much dr bank i really its getting late i really want to thank you for your time and there's so much more to talk about all of these topics that we touched upon um what would you recommend we'll talk afterwards but what would you recommend if a person wants to find out more about um what you've done in the world of jewish art or any of your other any of your writings or presentations where where can they look
1: and um, so I actually, I'm dreaming to build a site. It's not ready yet, but I'm in all kinds of different places. Um, I'm waiting for that as well. And I hope to <laughs> new center for art called inspiration. And I invite you all to come to the opening.
0: Okay, very good. Thank you so much for your time. We're really appreciative. And I know a lot of people will find much value in what you've what, what we've shared today. Thank you. Thank you. You've just listened to another great episode of Our Tribe, the podcast, brought to you by the Podcast Fellowship and hosted by Rabbi Tovia Kopstein. Tune in each week every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time to hear more great episodes of Our Tribe, the podcast. If you have any suggestions or questions, email us at at podcastfellowship.org. And don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to
1: help the tribe thrive.